you're going to have to forgive me this week because it's been, it's been a long week. There have been a lot of tears in my own heart and on my face, um, mainly because I know who we're dealing with. I know the journeys that, that are represented in this room, not all of them. I know the people that have firsthand felt the weight of allowing the culture to define sex for them and the pain and the hurt that has come with it, the guilt and the shame. And I've also felt the weight of knowing that some of you never had someone share with you the beauty of what God has given us in sex and marriage, and you've just known no other way. And my hope and my prayer this morning is that you will hear from the Father's heart very specifically His gift to us. And that you will not allow the enemy to shame or condemn you this morning. That you will allow the Holy Spirit to convict you because it is His kindness that leads us to repentance. The fact that the Lord would reveal to us the idols in our lives is His kindness. And I know we see it as torture, and we see it as pain, but it is Him taking from us the things that if we let rule, kill us. He's taking them from us so that He can give us the life that He called us to live. And it's found in Christ. And so if you'd let me in my feeble attempts to speak to you as a father, as someone who desperately cares for those that the Lord has placed in this space, to speak to you with truth and with grace. Father, I ask and I'm begging you in these moments, knowing the freedom you want to bring, but also knowing the battle that we are going to feel Lord, sex and sexuality and marriage are not trivial, side, peripheral things that to deal with. They are spiritual in nature, and they are powerful, and they have rule and reign, and they, we, they're gifts from you, but we've taken them and, and no longer allowed them to be gifts, but we've made them gods. And I ask for your, your, your complete mercy on us, for A, knowing no other way, but B, rejecting your way. And so, Lord, I am uh, dependent on you all the time. I know that. We are dependent on you all the time. But I'm asking for your help this morning. It's in your name I pray. Amen. I will probably be sticking to notes in, in a lot of this, not because I don't want to look you in the face and say some of these things. I do. But they're pointed words, and I don't want to waste your time. I want to make sure that what has been penned and what has been written is spoken in the pointed way that I believe the Lord desires to, to speak it, and I don't want to mess around. Um, so any time that you and I set the table to talk about sex and marriage and all of God's lofty standards, there is a potential for us to begin to walk in guilt and shame and fear and feel a shortcoming in our own lives and failure and disgrace and then there is also the opportunity to walk away angry, mad, stomp your feet, and say, forget it. I know that. 
I've felt it this week. I've felt it tremendously in the last month as we've talked about these idols that have ruled over us. But if I can say one thing first, and you may or may not believe this, but I am, am, I'm going to say this very crystal clear, that every single one of us in this room is sexually disoriented. Every one of us is sexually aimed in a direction of our own desire and away from God's desire. Every single one of us. And I know there's some of you in this room that may be thinking, well, so-and-so, no, no. We have to understand how closely tied sex is to the heart and how closely tied sin is to the heart. And when we understand how closely tied they are, we can see how easily our desires can be off. And so I want to make a statement very clearly that every single one of us is off. (laughs) Every single one of us has fallen. Every one of us has our temptations and our desires that are pointed to the things that are not of God. We're all in the same boat. Every one of us. But here's the beauty of this. Was Jesus simply a good teacher or did he come to save sinners? And what you believe about this will matter tremendously in how you walk in this journey when it comes to sex and sexuality. In the Gospel of Luke, we see why Jesus said that He came. This isn't our opinion about Jesus. Jesus spoke words to tell us why He came. And in Luke chapter 4, He says this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for He has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. He rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant, and sat down. All eyes in the synagogue looked at Him intently. Then He began to speak to them. The scripture you've just heard has been fulfilled this very day. Because you and I are those captives, we are the blind, we are the poor, we are the oppressed, Jesus came for us. You. Me. We are in desperate need to throw ourselves at the mercy of God from the very beginning who gave Himself for us. Jesus showed us a selfless love. Jesus died a selfless Death, not so that we could do things for Him, but so that He could gain for us what we could not buy, purchase, or earn on our own. Second, you and I have to acknowledge that it's not just our broken desires that would cause us to run after things opposed to God. There is a very very real philosophy in the world and a very real enemy that you and I go to battle against every morning. To the Colossian church, Paul said it this way, don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense that come from human thinking and from the spiritual powers of this world rather than from Christ. For in Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body, so you also are complete through your union with Christ who is the head over every ruler and authority. If you didn't notice, much of what we see here and allow to inform us come in direct opposition to what the Scripture might say. Paul says, be on guard. Be aware that there are philosophies, teachings, ideas, and thoughts that aim to capture you. 
So the next time someone tries to speak something to you, of you, about you, or over you, and tries to give you an identity that is outside of the scripture, it may be a good time for you to go, where did that thought come from? Did that thought come from the spiritual powers of this world, a high-sounding nonsense and teaching from human philosophies, or did it come from Christ himself? I believe most of our battle would be won if we would simply ask the question, where did the thought come from? And if we'd let the gospel define our thought life. Game changer. For the Christ follower, our desire is that God's word, Christ himself, would guard, govern, and guide. I don't know if you need G's words, but they are. There's a guarding that goes on in the Christ follower's life. There's a guiding and there's a governing. We sit under its authority. We don't define for it what it thinks. We let it define us. We let it shape us. This is the process we see God's word shaping his people, guarding his people, Do you really see God's word as a guard? Do you? Do you see it designed to guard us? Because I know there's some of you that maybe guard me from what? I just want to include you in on the Christ follower story, the journey of kingdom people, the pilgrimage that we are on. There is much that we need guarding from. And the Word of God provides a place for that. Unfortunately, in the church, and I'm not even even talking about out there. If we can just stop the out there versus uh, in here. Everyone out there thinks wrong, or everyone out there has a wrong view of something or other. If we could just go right here. If we could just point right here in our own hearts in the church and answer the question of where did that thought come from, maybe the church would look a little differently. You know, for those of us who claim to have a relationship with Christ, we've done something in the church and we've separated camps, if you will. We're either an all-truth church or we're an all-grace church. We're either a church who tells it how it is or we're a church that just says, everyone come. Everyone come and hang out. But what we see in Jesus is that he did not even balance grace and truth. And this is the problem I have with it. Jesus walked in balance with grace and truth. That's a misunderstanding of Jesus. Jesus came and gave us the full measure of both. So it's not like he's 50% grace, 50% truth, and that's what we're supposed to do. No, we're actually supposed to have to walk with the tension of understanding 100% grace, 100% truth. Such a strange concept, but because in our brain we do the math, like 200%, that doesn't make sense. (laughs) But we see it when when the woman who was set up and trapped by the Pharisees to be caught in the act of adultery, sex outside of marriage, not God's intention. She's drugged before Jesus, thrown before him, and they're like, what you going to do, Jesus? And they were hoping to trap him. They were hoping to shut him down. They were hoping to to show the people that Jesus is condemning and Jesus hates her. Or they wanted to show that Jesus didn't care about the law. He didn't care about a thing. They were hoping to trap him. But what happens? Jesus explodes their brains when he says, Okay, one of you throw the rock because you've never sinned, right? Every single one of them walk away. Jesus says to the woman, Where'd they go? Where are your condemners now? Where are they at? They're gone. Neither do I condemn you. And then he says, Go 
and sin no more. Do you know that Jesus acknowledged the wrong, right? He acknowledged the wrong. But because of truth and grace fully given to us, he does not condemn her and says, go and live new. Go on. Walk on. Walk in freedom. No longer bound to the condemnation that men may try and speak of you. And there will be people who probably speak poorly of you, but I do not. You're mine. Go and sin no more. To not hear the truth is to have no clue or understanding why we need His grace. Do you understand that? Like we talk about Jesus' grace, but if we exclude His truth, then we have no reason for His grace. We have no reason for His mercy. Because I haven't heard anything. All I've, told, all I've been told is, hey, come hang out. The reality is we need both. Fully. Not 50-50, but fully. The church is a place where sinners, you and I, can come to hear and know a Savior. But that means there's actually something we need saving from. You know that? Like we're not just kind of figuring things out, and we're just like, ah, oh, Jesus, come, I'll add Jesus to my life, and I'll do this, and I'll add this, and that's just giving me a well-rounded life. Baloney. It's not a well-rounded life. It's a forgiven life. It's a redempted, redeemed life. It's, a, it's actually, if according to Scripture, we are spiritually dead, brought to life. You have been made alive in Christ. That's the beauty of the church. It's a place where dead people come to life. It's not where we come to hear about how good we are. We're not good. We just need to admit that. We just need to stop saying we are. That's not an example of grace to say that we're good. That's an example of my own strength. And the world has seen the church trying really, really hard in her own strength for way too long. The world needs to see examples of grace. People who go, yep, sinner, need the Savior. Absolutely. I'm done. I'm finished. Without Christ, nothing. This is where we come together and hear this good news, this gospel message. And as we've been looking in this first series, we've actually been looking at good gifts from God. Did you know that? Did you know that we've been looking at gifts that have been given to us by God? Money and success, they're not bad things. They're good things. But what we've done is we've taken God's gifts and we've flipped it, and we've made those gifts gods. And any time you take a good gift and you make it a god, it becomes a very, very cruel master. And if you can hear anything that I say this morning, taking a good gift from God and making it God, it will destroy you. It cannot save you cannot rescue you, cannot be your savior, it cannot bring you to life. And in these good gifts, we will try and find all of those things. And the reality is Christ alone saves. And so we have to speak of this cruel and selfish master this morning. In a culture that's driven by me and selfishness and instant gratification, it only makes sense to me that sex and sexuality would be a major struggle for us today. 
We use phrases like booty calls and friends with benefits and no strings attached and hooking up and one night stands and just having some fun. We use phrases like hitting that and tapping that, getting with it. I hear friends talk this way. And unfortunately, I understand that mentality way too much because I'm just as selfish, just as broken. But as we begin to look into the scriptures, you can begin to see why phrases like this should break our hearts. Because God's intent for sex and sexuality and marriage is so much higher, I think, than we will ever know this side of eternity. But he gives us glimpses and he gives us, he hands to us this gift. Part of the battle is us realizing how hard the culture and society have worked to shape our view on sexuality. For many of us, you and I may not have any clue how we have allowed the culture to inform us about sex. Really, the culture boasts a a knowledge on positions and maneuvers, but she really doesn't know anything about sex. You look at the magazines, you look at the covers. I don't walk around with blinders on, guys, because I'm a pastor, okay? That would just be strange. It would be weird to walk around with things like this and like this. It's everywhere. Magazines. 25 this. 25 this. 50 best this. You know what I'm talking about. And the reality is culture has tried and grasped at anything to try and define sex for us. Culture will say that it's just an appetite. It's just like eating or drinking. We have to do it. And if we don't, to say no is cruel and strange and hurtful to someone. Culture is also, I mean, unfortunately, the church has had a poor role in people's understanding of sex. And they did, the church downplayed the value of sex. And and many religious people have a dirty view of it and that it's a necessary means to procreation and it's evil and it's this, that, and the other. And so the church has had 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 a rough time explaining the good gift of sex. Most currently, I believe, and obviously I think this has just been, it's been all throughout history, but the reality is it's people saying, sex is just self-expression. It's you finding yourself. And if you find it in marriage, great, that works for you. If you don't find it in marriage, that's fine. Do your own thing. But again, it's me, self, instant gratification. The culture really doesn't know what she's talking about. There's just as much confusion out there as there is in the church. Tim Keller says it this way, Sex affects our heart, our inward being, not just our body. Sin, which is first and foremost a disorder of the heart, therefore has a big impact on sex. Our passions and desires for sex now are very disoriented. C.S. Lewis said it this way. Wait, I thought C.S. Lewis only wrote children's books. No, he talks about sex. There is no getting away from it. The old Christian rule is either marriage with complete faithfulness to your partner or else total abstinence. Now this is so difficult and so contrary to our instincts that obviously either Christianity is wrong or our sexual instinct as it is now has gone wrong. One or the other. Of course, being a Christian, I think it is the instinct which has gone wrong. 
We see this regularly in both men and women in society and the culture around us. Men and the addiction to pornography being instant and anonymous. Complete opposite of the knowing that the Bible speaks of. Unrealistic expectations, killing marriages, offering a parody or a fake experience rather than allowing men and women to truly enjoy sexual union in marriage. We ask the question, how is sex trafficking even possible? It's such a disgusting and evil practice. But when you live based on a culture's understanding or idea or philosophy, it becomes a reality. It becomes a very real possibility that should break our hearts. With women, I mean, funnily enough, there's the hey girl memes out there with Ryan Gosling. You know, you know what I'm talking about. Hey girl, I do, I mean, and, and I, I don't think, I, I, I do think there's the data to back it up, but it's almost comparable in the number of men and women addicted to pornography today as it is, as you know, uh, in this culture, in this day and age, statistics are rising. It's because our culture and our society is, is pinpointing women in this journey as well. Fantasy, Bachelor, Novels, Fifty Shades, Magic Mike, only preying on the lustful desires of women. And just like men feel like they can't keep up to the standard of this romantic, fantasized, sweep-me-off-my-feet reality that they've lived in for so long, what happens is both in men's addiction to pornography and women's addiction to fantasy and knowing what superstars do and reading the magazines, what happens is they turn away from each other. So rather than turning to each other and being reminded of the covenant of marriage and being reminded of the gift of sex that they've been given, they've gone other places. As a culture, we see this happening regularly. In Paul's letter to a young man he's been discipling, he gives a warning in 2 Timothy. You should know this, Timothy, that in the last days there will be very difficult times, for people will love only themselves and their money. They will be boastful and proud, scoffing at God, disobedient to their parents and ungrateful They will consider nothing sacred. They will be unloving and unforgiving. They will slander others and have no self-control. They will be cruel and hate what is good. They will betray their friends, be reckless, be puffed up with pride, love pleasure rather than God. They will act religious. Did you hear that? They will act religious, but they will reject the power that could make them godly. Stay away from people like that. The church was born into a culture that was not very different from our own. The Bible is not some old, dusty, antiquated book with kind of an idea of how things work. The reality is the Bible is very keen and very sharp to the reality we live around. It addresses topics and issues that no one else will deal with. The church was very familiar with all kinds of sexual immorality and sexual behaviors. Adultery was everywhere. Multiple sexual partners. Homosexuality was present and widely accepted by the culture. The New Testament spoke out about these things, not because they had no clue as to what they were, but because they had a very good idea of what they were. Paul, in his letter to the Corinthian church, 
lets us know that some of the earliest converts to Christianity had turned from a life of sexual immorality. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 9, Don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin or who worship idols or commit adultery or are male prostitutes or practice homosexuality or are thieves or greedy people or drunkards or are abusive or cheat people, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 11, some of you were like that, but you were clean, cleansed. You were made holy. You were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Paul, along with the other church leaders, clearly forbid any type of sexual immorality. You can go to the book of Acts when they're dealing with the Gentiles. You can go to the book of Corinthians. You can go to Galatians, Ephesians, all the different times that Paul says, look, sexual immorality of every kind is not right for the people of God. Kingdom people are to be different. And one of the most incredibly different ways that you will stand out as a Christ follower is to have a high view of sex, a high view of marriage, a high view of sexuality. Not the way the culture views it. Paul gives the good news in this, that when we confess Jesus as Lord, that declaration trumps all of our natural desires. So we now have a way to ask the correct question. Where did that thought come from? Did it come from worldly philosophies, thoughts of men, spiritual powers of this world, or did it come from Christ? The early Christians set a tone for sexual behavior in a very promiscuous era. They took seriously their identity in Christ in one early church letter written to a man named Dionetus, the man describes Christians this way, and I love it. He says that they spread their table for all, but they opened their bed for none. They spread their table for all, but they opened their bed for none. This was a very different kingdom mentality that the church walked with as they took very seriously the identity of being God's people. Early Christians, by the way they lived, revealed the sexual idols of their culture. Did you know that Christ followers were not just put to death for saying that Jesus is Lord? Did you know that Christ followers were put to death for suggesting that a culture, a government, a society cannot determine what is right and wrong? Did you know that? Did you know that they said that there is a God who's eternal and His Word is planted and is firm and is a foundation for all of us to respond to, but our natural tendency is to reject it. And so they were murdered and killed for suggesting that the culture doesn't get to define morals and the way to live. Yes, they were, they were killed for saying that Jesus is Lord, but many of them lost their lives for suggesting that God's Word is for all people, in all places, at all times. But the great news of verse 11 is that some of you were once like that. A difference. Something changed. Something made new, and that is the gospel shows up. Christ himself gives himself up for people who do not love God's ways. And that through faith, in Christ's finished work, we now have an opportunity for redemption and restoration and being made whole because He is on the throne. 
not our natural desires, not our brokenness, not the things we think will give us the hope, the love, the joy that we expect it to be, but Christ himself. Paul follows up this way, for those who are in Christ, we cannot downplay the deadliness of sin, but we need to talk about the greatness of the grace and mercy of Christ Jesus. And Paul reminds us of some things in verses 12 to 20. You say, I'm allowed to do anything. Some of you have said that. I've said that. You say, I'm allowed to do anything. But not everything is good for you. And even though I'm allowed to do anything, I must not become a slave to anything. This is the whole good gifts being made gods in our lives. We think we have control or mastery over them, but the reality is they've got us by the throat. I must not become a slave to anything. You say food was made for the stomach and the stomach for food. This is true, though someday God will do away with both of them. But you can't say that our bodies were made for sexual immorality. They were made for the Lord. And the Lord cares about our bodies. And God will raise us from the dead by His power, just as He raised our Lord from the dead. Don't you realize that your bodies are actually parts of Christ? Should a man take his body, which is part of Christ, and join it to a prostitute? Never! Don't you realize that if a man joins himself to a prostitute, he becomes one body with her? For the Scriptures say the two are united into one. Do you think the Bible has a low view of sex? I think we have the low view of sex. The Bible has a very high view of what goes on when this happens. But the person who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with Him. Run from sexual sin. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does, for sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. Now, as Christ followers, we do try and use the, oh, well, it's all sin. Well, it is sin. It's all sin. They're all the same consequences, but there are differences that happen in our lives depending on the severity of the sin. So we can't just say, it's all sin. It's just all sin. Yes, true. It all separates us from God. But the severity of the consequences in our own lives that show up are very different. Verse 19, don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself. For God bought you with a high price, so you must honor God with your body. See, this is the thing I want my children to understand and I want us to understand this morning. That sex is a pointer to our fully knowing God and God fully knowing us. And I hope you go, whoa, that is way high above you. That's way out there. That's way up there. Because it is. Sex is a pointer, a direction to, a reminder to, that we were made to fully know God and God to fully know us. This is foundational for Christ's followers in understanding life. I am not my own. I exist by Him, through Him, and for Him, <clears throat> but not as a robot. God desires to know us. And as we have been united with Christ, we are no longer slaves to sex, sexual cravings, sexual drives, in a dishonoring way to God. It is in knowing God that I am empowered to live as He invites us to. 
In Genesis chapter 1, you have to start here to have a good foundation. Verse 27 and 28, so God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. And then later down there in verse 31, he says, this is good. I make things good. And that be fruitful and multiply, it means what you think it means. I don't have to interpret for you. I mean, let's be honest here. If God didn't intend sex to be for procreation and pleasure, okay, we have to make sure we we make that very clear. You can giggle, you can smile, you can laugh. I get it. If he didn't, he could have made babies come by high-fiving. Every time you high-five, get a baby. Terrible idea, because I high-five everybody, but still... But the reality is, if God did not intend sex for His glory, to, for us to procreate and fill the earth, be fruitful and multiply, it's the first command here in Scripture, if He didn't intend to be pleasurable, He could have given it to us any way possible. Kids could have come about anyway. Storks. Just show up on your front porch. But the reality is, God did not just intend it to be a cold and stale process. He intended it for pleasure within the confines and protection of marriage, of one person, one man, one woman for one life. In Genesis chapter 2, we get a little more detail. Starting in verse 21, So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. While the man slept, the Lord God took out one of the man's ribs and closed up the opening. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib, and he brought her to the mom to, to the man Sorry, at last... The man exclaimed, This one is bone for my bone and flesh for my flesh. She will be called a woman because she was taken from a man. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Now the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. What a good picture. It makes sense that God would go, man, that is good. And I'm going to be very careful to make sure you understand that Jesus fully supported the scriptural declaration in Genesis. Jesus didn't just walk around making things up. He was actually like, don't you know the scriptures? Listen to the scriptures in Matthew chapter 19. He says it this way, haven't you read the scriptures? Jesus replied, they record that from the beginning, God made them male and female. And he said, This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Since they are no longer two but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. This whole joining of flesh just doesn't mean skin and bodies. You have to understand that God is speaking of the entire person. Marriage is a union between two entire people, not just a physical act. United and cleave are words that are binding and there's this covenant and this contract that is involved in this process. Every aspect of two people's lives together. Tim Keller says it this way, the Bible says, don't unite with someone physically unless you're also willing to unite with a person emotionally, personally, socially, economically, and legally. Don't become physically naked and vulnerable to the other person without becoming vulnerable in every other way because you have given up your freedom and bound yourself in marriage 
And once you've given yourself in marriage, sex is a way of maintaining and deepening that union as the years go by. Did you know that it's, it's almost as if a, it's a renewal of the vows, renewal of the covenant that you made? Nothing to hide, nothing to fear, fully known and being known fully. Celebrating this gift of sex, no shame, no awkwardness, no hurt, fully blessed by God. God made Adam and Eve relational, sexual beings, and he blessed them and gave them boundaries to guide. Walk with me, talk with me, know me, and that you will be fully alive in that. That's what you were made for. Authenticity, nakedness, not just physically, but in every other way possible. But as you and I both know, things went terribly wrong in the garden. Sin entered the world and man and woman could no longer be content with God's ways and His rule and His authority. They wanted to take on the rule and the authority and everything from there muddied the waters. A warped view on sex, a warped view on men and women, a warped view on gender, a warped view on relationships, a warped view on childbirth, a warped view on child raising. Everything gets muddied because the sin that kills us enters the world. And now you have a culture scrambling to define things that God has already given us definition for. And it's for our good pleasure that he defined them for us. But it wasn't the end of God's pursuit in knowing us. We see it time and time again in the Old Testament, God saying, you're my people, I'm your God. He's saying the vows. He's saying the covenant, that promise that he made, I'm your God, you're my people. He revisits it all the time with them. He doesn't stop pursuing them just because sin enters the world. In fact, in Jeremiah, we see a predictor to what we are actually going to be getting to experience. In Jeremiah 31, the Lord says this, The day is coming when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. This covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. They broke that covenant, though I loved them as a husband loves a wife, says the Lord. But this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my instructions deep within them and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people and they will not need to teach their neighbors, nor will they need to teach their relatives saying, you should know the Lord. For everyone from the least to the greatest will know me already, says the Lord, and I will forgive their wickedness and I will never again remember their sins. These are those gospel moments where you see what we were made for, and that is to know him and be known by him. Yes, part of our role is to make him known to the world. But that comes because he knows us and we know him. Did you know that the church wasn't founded on, on a belief statement or a mission statement? It was founded on eyewitness testimony. It's the same thing we move in today. I know him. He knows me. He wants to know you. That's where we walk as Christ followers. Now, every time, not every time, but there are multiple times in the use of Scripture, the word to know means sexual relations. You giggled at it when you read it in Scripture. Modern translations say it, but Adam knew his wife. See, in the Scripture, Joseph did not know Mary until after Jesus was born. We could stop right there and ask if that is anything like what we see in our culture. The answer is no. Strangers 
hookups, voyeurism, internet screens, everything is detached of knowing. The Bible paints a very intimate picture. We were created sexual beings to understand what it is to know someone in the way God desires to know us, freely and unhindered, for His glory and our pleasure, the intimacy we know with husband and wife, not simply physical nakedness, but all the masks and all the covers and all the hiding, it's done. It's done to be fully known and to know. And I, and I do want to make very clear because I know we live in a perverted culture and I know we live in a way, in a society that tries to twist things and make things gross and disgusting, but nowhere in Scripture does it suggest that we have sex with God or God has sex with us. That is a cultish, um, uh, false um, idea that, that sex with the divine is anything like that. That is not Christian practice. It is not scriptural. It is not what we're talking about here. But because I know we live in a perverted and gross society, it's a thought you probably had. The knowing that we were meant for God with is not just that of a scholar, but that of a lover. And I know there are some of us in this room that we have a really hard time separating sex and intimacy, and we're like, but sex is sex and intimacy and intimacy. Or we try and say they're both the same thing, and so we've tried to redefine things, and the reality is... Just because someone's having sex does not mean there's intimacy there. And the reality is we were made for more. Jesus said that the eternal life was knowing God in John 17, 3. And this is the way to have eternal life, to know you. Paul said that in in Philippians chapter 3 that everything else in comparison was garbage. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Now that does not mean the sexual relations word no. That actually means beyond scholarly to a relationship being present. Christ Jesus my Lord, for his sake I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. None of those terms for no are sexual in any way, but they do move beyond scholarly to deep relationship. For my wife and I, if I was to just say, I know about Doreen, it's not the same as saying I know her. For her to say of me, well, I know about Jason, it's not the same as saying I know him. You know what I mean when we're saying relationships. Paul shows us the deeper meaning of sex in marriage in Ephesians, in Ephesians 5. As the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. This is a great mystery, but it's an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. God didn't see marriage and sex and go, huh, you guys are onto something. Yeah, that's a great picture. I think I'm going to use that to describe my relationship with you. No, he gave the gifts to us so that we would know what it means to know him. You see... A culture may be trying to redefine something, but can't, because it's already been defined. God defined it. As Christ followers, we just go, he's already told us. He shared with us what it's for and why it's given. It's a high and lofty goal, but if God says that's how we're to live, the beauty of the gospel is he gives us the power to live that way. Did you know that? What God requires of us, he gives us the strength to actually do. It's not going to be on our shoulders to live as he commands. We trust him. We walk with him. And he actually empowers us to walk as his people. That is so crazy to me. (laughs) If you're like, but well, I don't do anything. You're right. (laughs) He gives us what we need to be obedient to his commands. 
And in the Old Testament, God initiates this covenant. That's why we celebrate weddings. That's why we go, it's a big deal for someone to get married. We celebrate what one says at the altar, in front of God, in front of friends, in front of family, the work that goes into putting on a wedding celebration, all the stress, all the things, all the money, all of it being used to have a wedding. We celebrate because it's reflective of the covenant God made with us. Jesus did not make a private declaration of his love for us. It was public. When Jesus died on the cross, he did the last thing. Pri- I mean, there was no, no privacy about that. It was all in front of everyone saying, this is the covenant I'm making with you, and I seal it in my own blood. We celebrate weddings. We celebrate marriage in the way that we should. The Old Testament, man, weddings would go on for days. It's because people took seriously what they were saying to each other. It was a joy, and it was an excitement, and it was a reminder of God's faithfulness to us. And that's why in the Old Testament, sexual promiscuity and sleeping around were tied to spiritual adultery. That's why the phrase adultery is used when we run after idols. It's because God, He sees us as His bride. The church is His bride. The nation of Israel, His people, And when his people turn their backs, it's just as if a wife has run from her husband and is cheating with other lovers. I might be accused of a high view of sex and and its, its purpose in marriage, and I hope that's the case. Because God has shared with us why sex was given, so we treasure this gift in marriage and we reject a cheapened, anything less version than what God has given us. So sex is a pointer to us knowing God and being fully known by Him, but I also want to say to you that it's in knowing God that He guards our view of sex and sexuality. And I'm not just talking about abstinence, and I, and I want to be very clear on this. I, the True Love Waits campaign and different abstinent movements for Christians is, is a good thing. It's suggesting another way, but it's not the power over sexual temptation. I want you to know that that when it comes to abstinence, even abstinence can be a very selfish, driven, self-centered motivation. You can say, well, I just don't want to inconvenience myself with an STD, or this, or that, or the other. Oh, well, I just don't want to do those things. And the fact is, if we just let abstinence be our drive, we can find ourselves lowering the standard of what sex actually is. Do you know the number of True Love Waits cards that people, they did a survey, and it was roughly 40-some-odd percent did not wait till marriage. And it said 50% of the, those who did wait engaged in oral sex. You know what happens when we just go abstinence or this or that or the other. Self-control, that's what it's about. You actually can find yourself being more selfish, more self-centered. And the reality is we are not just to flee sexual sin in 2 Timothy. Listen to what he says. Run from anything that stimulates youthful lusts. Instead... Pursue righteousness, living faithfulness, love, and peace. Enjoy the companionship of those who call on the Lord with pure hearts. It's not simply running away from something, but it's what we run toward to, toward that guards us. And the Bible says to pursue Christ, to love Him with all of our heart and our mind and our soul and our strength. As we close this morning, I do want you to know There is much to talk about. There is. And as Christ followers, we have to talk about it. 
We have to be able to dialogue and interact with people who may or may not know the high lofty view of sex that God has for us. One of the strangest ways Christ followers will stand out in life is our peculiar high view of sex and marriage. And I know we're living in a culture that wants to downgrade and to point downward and just to go, you know what, it is whatever you want it to be. It's about emotions. It's about this. It's about that. And the reality is, God has given us a very great gift. And as I said to you before, one of the things that the sexual immorality does is it keeps us from being all that God desires for us to be. In 1 Thessalonians 4, God's will is for you to be holy. So stay away from all sexual sin. Then each of you will control his own body and live in holiness and honor. Not in lustful passion like pagans who do not know God. In Hebrews 13, there's a high view of marriage given. In 1 Peter chapter 1, we see the power over temptation and our natural desires is available to us through the Holy Spirit and knowing God. And so today I just wanted to simply close with this. I have felt the shame and the guilt and then the anger at having sin pointed out. I have felt the how dare they. I've walked away mad. But as I began to understand what conviction is, the role of the Holy Spirit in a believer's life, I began to be thankful with time for the Lord's kindness pointing me to repentance. With the enemy's tool of shame, his goal is to remind you who you are without Christ, and I want you to be on guard against that. His goal is to remind you of how you failed, how you will fail again. Ultimately, his aim is to cause you to flee from God. Shame makes us run away from him. Conviction followed by repentance causes you to run to the cross. Clinging to Christ's life and death and resurrection, desiring to see a relationship restored, God addressing our sins so that we can be free to be his people. And I know that for some of you in this room, there are two words that are going to keep you from that freedom. And those two words are man's opinion. There are some of you, as Tommy talked about last week, that will cheat yourself because you're going to trade freedom for getting to lunch on time. You're going to trade freedom for just keeping things normal. And you're going to trade freedom for I just don't want anyone to think. Fill in the blank. God's freedom and restoration you will cheat yourself of because you need to get your name on a shorter restaurant waiting list. That would be a mistake. To cheat yourself of the wholeness and new life that God brings because you don't want to mess up your normal flow of life would be a travesty. In fact, it's your normal that has gotten you into this. And it will keep you there. And it will destroy you. To cheat yourself of the forgiveness and hope of God found in Christ because you are worried about what someone else thinks is to say, I choose to remain in this prison because I care more about what they think about me than what God thinks about me. These all would be mistakes. Especially when the gospel says run home. I heard it said by one woman in premarital counseling who was new to the faith, and she said this. 
She said, the truth will set you free, but first it'll piss you off. <laughs> and I'd like to leave you with that. Because I believe there are two sets of people in here. I believe there's one set of people who are going, I want that high and lofty goal of you, of sex and marriage. And I want God to give me the strength for it. And the other group is the one who says, well, I've already messed it up, so I can't have it. And the reality is, the enemy will speak to you that way. The church is a place for sinners to come and hear the good news that Christ defeated death, sin, the penalty and power over sin. And he's come to give us life. And so for both of those people, both of those categories, the ones who say, I want that, the ones who said, I've fallen, you know what we do? The same thing, we run to the cross. We're in the same boat together. And that's how we walk. A way to push back against society's definition of this view of sex is to say, God, please give me your view for these gifts that you have handed us. And so this morning we are going to do as we've done every week is we're going to give opportunity to just come forward, repent, and just say, Jesus, I need you. I want that. I don't have it. I need your grace. I need your mercy. I want you to understand that I'm... I, I need this. And so if that means that somehow Jason is a pervert, well, Jesus died the pervert's death. Jesus died the death of the sexually immoral so that we would not have to taste it. He absorbed the full wrath of God so that we could know the full grace of God. This is the power of the good news. We weren't meant to stay chained, to stay bound, because Jesus said he came to release those who were bound. And that time is now. And so if you'd like to be prayed for, there'll be some elders standing over there. You don't even have to tell them what you need prayer for, but they'll just be there to pray for you. Same here. But if you don't need anyone to pray for you, but you need to move out of your seat and do something, you can use any of this space you want. So I just say, Lord, help me see it the way you see it. If that's our prayer, I feel like we'll walk out going, Jesus, thank you. Lord, we love you, and uh, this is so much. It's so big. It seems so weighty and lofty. And Lord, we're, we're wrestling right now, but God, just give us the strength we need to fulfill what you've asked of us. And Lord, where we fail, may we look at the cross and not our failures. Because you bought for us what we could not on our own. And it's in your name we pray.